0: Hi, this is Sake Brahman from the Orthoclips podcast series, and today I'm with Dr. Leslie Barnes, Assistant Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and a Shoulder and Elbow Specialist at Temple University Department of Orthopedics, and we're gonna be talking about frozen shoulder myths and truths. Thanks, Dr. Barnes, for being with me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I think this is a good topic. Um, somewhat of general interest, Uh, what is your number one myth about the frozen shoulder?
1: (laughs) Um, My number one myth is probably that surgery is a quick fix. A lot of people come to me thinking that if they can just get surgery to release the scar tissue or whatever it is they think is causing the frozen shoulder, um, they'll be better the second they wake up. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not true. I wish it was but it's not true. Uh, It still takes a lot of hard work of rehabilitation and continued range of motion exercises pretty much starting the day after surgery in order to get a good result. Because otherwise, the scar tissue will really just reform, actually. So basically, the surgery does release the scar tissue or the adhesions, but it's not the only thing needed for a good result. And it's still a lot, a lot of hard work in physical therapy, even after surgery.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, that, that's an important myth, I guess, to dispel. Well, What would you say is one of your most important truths, I guess, or pearls, you know, things that you want to make sure people know about frozen shoulder? <sighs>
1: I would say that, uh, first of all, the frozen shoulder occurs in three stages. So the first stage is, is the painful stage. And that's typically when a lot of people present. It's usually early presentation, and it's um, the freezing stage, we call it. So they may have mild restriction in range of motion, but really pain is the predominant symptom there. It progresses then to a frozen or actually stiff shoulder. And that's an actual mechanical block pretty much because by that time, the capsule has has actually thickened. The structure of the capsule has changed somewhat and has caused a restriction in motion. What we wanna do is get through those first two stages to the third stage, which is the thawing stage or the melting stage. And all of our treatments are pretty much aimed at getting us to that melting stage and so the truth is that um you go through these three stages but your goal is to get it all to melt and if you can do that you don't need surgery
0: okay so um okay yeah the stages everybody should know about the stages what's um what's another myth um either that other doctors or patients themselves uh, hold about the frozen shoulder
1: i think another myth is just that um non-operative treatment doesn't work. It's, uh, that is a myth. It does work. Um, but non-operative treatment doesn't mean no treatment. In other words, it doesn't just mean waiting for the shoulder to get better. It actually requires attention and medication sometimes. And so what does work is a physical therapy for a range of motion exercises as much as many days in the week as they can get there and supplemented at home as well on the days that they are not in physical therapy. So either with the therapist, two days a week, maybe three days a week, but realistically, that is not even the majority of days in the week. So what we really need to see is a regular program at home, in addition to working with a therapist, you know, one-on-one to improve their range of motion as much as possible. And so the myth is that therapy doesn't work. I would say for this condition, it really does, and it can make a big difference. Uh, and the other myth regarding treatment is that um, once you've tried Advil or something, you've maxed out your non-operative treatment. Um, the truth is that uh, steroids help too. Uh, and steroids can either be a Medrol dose pack, like an oral form of steroids, or they can be a cortisone or a steroid injection into the shoulder joint to um, help with the anti-inflammatory response that you need, but also to deliver medicine, you know, directly into the shoulder in the case of an injection.
0: All right. So I think from what I'm hearing from you, big myth is that non-op treatment uh, doesn't work. And then you kind of counter that by saying, NSAIDs either orally or injections. And of course you mentioned physical therapy uh, are your mainstays of treatment. Um, Any other myths uh, as we start to go down the line? I'm sure you're telling me your most important ones first, but uh, there's some more obscure ones that people hold.
1: Yeah, I think that people think also that it's always from diabetes. I would say that diabetes is one of the most common causes and also one of the ones with the worst prognosis, actually. Diabetic patients are more likely to need surgery than other groups of patients. They tend to have a worse stiffness, and that gives them a lot of visibility. But it's not just from diabetes. It can be really from any endocrine changes, actually. It can be thyroid conditions can be associated, but even hormonal changes like menopause, or big fluctuations in hormone uh, can cause frozen shoulder. So it doesn't always have to be diabetes. Although if a patient hasn't had any other regular checkups, I sometimes do tell them to if they don't have, for instance, a thyroid problem or um, perimenopausal symptoms, I sometimes tell them go get checked for diabetes because there is a high association with it and they may not have a diagnosis, but they should be checked for it. Uh, However, besides diabetes, there are other endocrine causes that can lead to frozen shoulder. And then there are also non-endocrine causes that can lead to frozen shoulder. So it can be post-traumatic. It can be related to a fall or even a fracture in the shoulder that leads to this abundance of stiffness, uh, pain, stiffness, and adhesions in the capsule. And it can also be post-surgical or related to uh, recent uh, rotator cuff surgery, for instance, but also any axillary surgery. So I see also patients who've had um, mastectomies or axillary um, node dissections, who because of the natural healing process and the desire for mobilization of the arm I, related to their chest or breast surgery, they get frozen shoulder as well, just a mechanical uh, cause from adjacent surgery so the endocrine causes are important not just diabetes but a lot of endocrine changes and then there are also post-traumatic or post-surgical factors that can lead to frozen shoulder too
0: mm-hmm. um okay that's a good point any um any other uh, important uh, pearls uh, truths, truths points you want to make that uh you think aren't that obvious
1: I would say that, yeah, a couple things uh, first of all it 's an actual inflammatory process of the joint capsule itself, so it causes fibroblastic proliferation in the joint capsule, which is a three hundred and sixty degree pouch around the whole shoulder, and the entire the entire pouch is affected really, um, it leads to thickening fibrosis and adherence or adhesions within the capsule. And the, way you do, the reason that this is important is because it can help you with diagnosis and then also management. So in terms of diagnosis, because the capsule as a 360 degree structure is infected globally, it leads to a loss of motion in all planes. So I would say that you don't just lose your forward elevation, but you also lose external rotation. You also lose internal rotation. It's every direction that the shoulder wants to go in is restricted. And so sometimes people come in and they really just only have pain going up. (laughs) Um, And that's a very common complaint and can be very limiting. But that's not necessarily frozen shoulder because that's only in one plane of motion. So I would say that the distinguishing feature on diagnosis, on physical exam, is not just restriction and pain with forward elevation, but also with external rotation and internal rotation. And so the dividing factor, the thing that's less common with other etiologies is that loss of external rotation at the side. So if they can't even externally rotate or wiggle their arm when it's down at the side, that's typically frozen shoulder. And these are people who can't, You know, they can't even reach behind them to, you know, for hygiene. They can't um, pull their seatbelt out. They're like everyday things. They physically can't do it that they used to be able to do. Whereas a loss of forward elevation or pain with forward elevation is common with a lot of shoulder problems, including rotator cuff pathology. So the distinguishing feature, I would say the distinct or unique one to frozen shoulder is loss of external rotation in the passive and active Categories.
0: I think that's uh, it's a really good teaching point. And maybe I'll kind of ask a, a question pretty much related to that, um, which is, um, you know, not, well, I guess I'll just say not all patients with difficulty moving their shoulder have frozen shoulder. And I would bet right. patients come in and say, I have a frozen shoulder, and you're like, actually, this is something else. What mm-hmm. are your, what are your, uh, well, maybe I'll just kind of ask in general what's your approach to sort of the diagnosis of the patient who comes in with, you know, pain upon pain and difficulty moving their shoulder? And then what's your approach to managing the patients who actually have frozen shoulder? So what's mm-hmm. your, your personal way of, of dealing with these? In your practice?
1: Okay, thank you. Yeah, that is a great uh, segue into what is my approach so first of all i do think imaging is important because i don't have x-ray vision and things like arthritis can also restrict your motion in all planes now arthritis will typically have crepitus or crepitations on exam which frozen shoulder will not have so there will be other signs but i do think the x-ray is very helpful to distinguish between an arthritic shoulder and a shoulder that really should just have a normal x-ray with normal cartilage in the case of frozen shoulder. And it will also distinguish between a recent fracture and an old fracture. So a patient who just broke their shoulder will also have pain and restricted motion. Of course, they'll also have other signs on physical examination, like bruising and swelling and things that a frozen shoulder will not have. Uh, But it'll be important to tell if... um, the patient has any of these pathologies because in the case of a fracture, you would wait for it to heal. And then of course, begin physical therapy afterwards. And they could then develop frozen shoulder. Of course, once the fracture is healed, that's a different category, which we touched on briefly, but you would want to know if there was any fracture recent or in the past. And then you'd want to know if there are arthritis. Uh, So the imaging will tell me that. And then uh, also the physical exam findings that I mentioned. So in the case of arthritis, you will have a distinguishing feature of crepitations and grinding, catching, and things like that. And in the case of a fracture, you'll have external signs of trauma. So a, a shoulder with adhesive capsulitis will look benign. They should have really no external changes. Their skin should be benign. They should have no crepitations or grinding sensation, but really an actual, just a mechanical block at, at certain um, levels of forward elevation, external rotation or internal rotation. And then their imaging should essentially be normal. They should have really no pathology or minimal pathology on, on imaging. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so that's my first approach with uh, di- with uh, some of the diagnosis loss of passive and active motion with relatively benign imaging Uh, in all planes, the loss of motion.
0: And And then then, what's your approach once you make a diagnosis of the frozen shoulder in somebody, what's your general approach to management?
1: So my approach to management is to uh, get them in a very vigorous physical therapy uh, and stretching program. And again, that should be, you know, five to seven days a week which might include two to three days of physical therapy and then three to four days of homework. And the homework has to really be um, a specific set of stretches to work on each plane differently. So I work on forward elevation, external rotation and internal rotation. And with forward elevation that may be a pulleys or raising up a bar or a key where the two arms are you know both holding onto the bar or the cane. And the good arm is helping the injured arm up. And you're trying to get higher and higher each time. Use that same bar or cane to push the arm externally when the arm is at the side. So that works on your external rotation. And then you bring the bar behind your back and try to pull the arm up your back to work on internal rotation. So those there's, uh, there's different Um, directions in the shoulder, but those are the three cardinal directions I would say to work on in terms of self-directed stretches and then, you know, supplementing that with the physical therapy. So I think first and foremost, you need an actual um, mechanical program for the shoulder. But I think medication modalities can also help. And those include anti-inflammatory medications such as non-steroidals as well as steroidal medications. And the steroids can be, there have been studies showing equal efficacy for um, steroids that are injected into the shoulder, as well as steroids that are taken orally. So ultimately, there has been equal efficiency or effectiveness of either modality or delivery method of the steroid, whether a pill pack or an injection.
0: And when you say injection, you mean subacromial or intraarticular? Do you distinguish here or...
1: Yeah, that's a good question. We generally mean intraarticular because I do think you get a benefit to a little bit of that volume distending the capsule, like a mechanical right. distension. Uh, we really don't do – it's a little historic to actually physically distend the capsule to the point of internally stretching it. That was um, – sort of a historical technique where they would physically put in a catheter in the shoulder joint and physically expand it with saline oh, Right, um, to try to break up adhesions. <laughs> That's been described. It's pretty painful. The patients are awake and, um, you know, it obviously has some limitation to it. <laughs> and
0: you uh, but end but up there... having to do surgery for these patients. I guess yeah, when so... these methods fail and if so, what, um, what are the mainstays of treatment?
1: That's a good question. So these methods have to be tried. So if they haven't done therapy or cortisone injections or anything or steroid pills, then I don't consider it a failure of treatment yet, Even regard, almost regardless of how long they've had the symptoms. So they might have had several months of symptoms, but if they haven't had any actual treatment for it, the clock doesn't start for me.
0: Okay. So they
1: have to have had the treatment um, and failed the treatment for me to consider surgery. And basically, I'm looking for uh, their improvement at three months. At three months, I don't expect the symptoms to be completely resolved. In fact, it can take up to a year for the symptoms to completely resolve. But I'm looking for improvement. If I see you know, a notable improvement or you know, a big change between zero and three months of treatment, I'm pretty confident that we can get the rest of the way there with non-operative management. I still do follow them to make sure that they're progressing as expected and we can make a change to surgical management if we need to. But I'd like to see improvement between zero and three months of treatment. If there's no improvement at all at three months and the patient's a diabetic, they are likely headed towards surgery. Um, But sometimes we do wait up to six months to give them a real shot at it. Uh, There's really no... um, There's no technical reason to do it sooner than later. Um, It's really more for the patient's benefit or their frustration level, for instance. But a lot of patients um, obviously want to avoid surgery. So if you see improvement by three months, you're generally on the right track, but you still have to continue to follow them. If they have had symptoms for three to six months, I think surgery is indicated or at least reasonable. And the surgery that I do is arthroscopic capsular release. So I put the camera in and I actually use electrocautery or radiofrequency ablation to release the adhesions or the fibroblastic proliferation from the inside out. And I try to do that in a controlled manner, especially um, for the tight shoulders. And I do that for the superior capsule, the anterior capsule and the posterior capsule. It's a little dangerous to use electrocautery or radiofrequency ablation in the inferior capsule because of its proximity to the axillary nerve. So I generally complete the release by taking the camera out and all the instruments out and then doing a very gentle manipulation at the end to release the um, manually release the inferior capsule. But I do find that combined arthroscopic capsule release with the manual manipulation is um. Uh, a little more effective and a little safer than straight manipulation under anesthesia with no arthroscopy Um, because the main risks of MUA alone are, you know, fracturing the arm or breaking the arm Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, or dislocating it. And also a risk is just that you don't get all the scar tissue out by just manually manipulating it. So I like to combine um, the arthroscopy with a gentle manual manipulation as well.
0: Okay, and um, I guess last question because we have to wrap up. What, generally speaking, what percentage of your patients do you think end up uh, needing that surgical management?
1: Hmm, I you would say.
0: Definitely have a frozen shoulder, and you start yep. that non-operative treatment, but end up needing surgical treatment.
1: Honestly, in my practice, I would say it's five percent or less. Pretty low. It was pretty low. I would say the vast majority, um, once we get them on a pro- the proper program with medication just to maximize their effectiveness in therapy, they, they, get, they get there.
0: Yeah. So I think just like the first thing you said, it's not an easy fix. Um, you got to understand the stages and um, non-operative management really really can work as long as you understand what's going on and how to employ the right uh, non-operative techniques. But when all else fails, um, there are some good surgical treatment techniques. So, well, like I said, we're kind of out of time, um, but I think that was great. Thank you very much and uh, appreciate
1: you uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and uh, definitely uh, feel free to reach out uh, if there are any questions that remain after the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.